Welcome to Women in Charge, a podcast about women who are in charge of things and the things they are in charge of. This week, I'm speaking to Anna Allenbrook, the longtime principal of PS146, otherwise known as the Brooklyn New School, a public elementary school in Brooklyn. Today, we talk about how to evaluate teachers without standardized tests, the parent management part of a principal's job, and how to handle a teacher who's just not working out. Thanks so much for being here, Anna. You're welcome. So what are you in charge of? Well, Brooklyn New School, PS146, is a public school in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn. We have 694 children, and that means we have a staff of about 100. So I guess that's what I'm in charge of. (laughs) And how did you become a principal? Were you a teacher first? I was actually a teacher at the school, at Brooklyn New School. And that's a long story that we might not have time for. But basically, um, there was a transitional time in the school when we... Um, I was asked by my colleagues to step into the leadership role, and that was in 1997. Uh, We'd had a little bit of a difficult year the prior year with the administration, and lots of history here, but there was a time when not all public schools had principals. So I stepped in as a co-teacher director. Um, The decision was made to have two teachers that were in charge, and they wanted one from inside the school and one from outside. So I was the one from inside. I had been teaching in the school, and I worked with another person, and we did that together for two years. And continued teaching? No, no, no. Okay. We were we were entitled. We were teacher directors. We didn't really teach. We didn't have our own class or anything. Um, but we didn't have the license. The important part here is we didn't have the license to be principals. At that point, um, this was happening in a bunch of schools around the city. So the CSA, which is our the principal union, took the city to court and said they can't have schools because, you know, we're a lot cheaper. Teachers <laughs> were a lot cheaper than principals. Um, can't have teachers running schools. And so I actually um, went back to school. The district, I was at um, Brooklyn New Schools in District 15, um, paid for my not just me, but a bunch of us to become um, principals by getting us the coursework. I used to go after work down to the district office and take my classes, and that's how I became a principal. When you got into teaching, did you envision that one day this is what you'd be doing? <laughs> Absolutely not. A very shy, <laughs> quiet young woman. There's no way I would be a principal. No. <laughs> were the skills, I'm curious what you think the skills were that you showed in the classroom that made your colleagues think you were ready to be a leader? I like to think, and this is sort of patting myself on the back, is that I'm pretty, I am a good listener. And so the fact that I was able to listen, hear children, not just children, parents, my colleagues, um, and process what they were saying and then um, perhaps encourage, support, et cetera, make things happen, that even though I was quiet, I was a doer. I think those were the skills. I like to think. Yeah. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about Brooklyn New School. What makes it distinctive? I've seen it described, you know, as progressive, but I don't know what that means sort of at the everyday level. So Brooklyn New School is a progressive school for sure. It was started in 1987 by a group of um, parents and teachers who wanted something a little bit different for their children. It was started um, with just a small, I think it was no more than 100 kids. And um, today, as I say, we're quite big. But there were some basic principles that they had back then that we still have today. Um, It was modeled on a school that you may have heard of called Central Park East. So that was the model for Brooklyn New School. And that vision was um, what we call inquiry-based or hands-on learning, where kids are doing things. 
uh, working together in heterogeneous grouping, so not this idea of giftedness and and um, slow and all of those kind of labels that we put on children. And uh, another very important idea, or two other in ideas that were important that are still really relevant today, um, parent involvement, that you needed parents to be a part of the learning process. And the other big idea was that you wanted to bring kids together from different communities, different backgrounds. So it was a, one of the first schools of choice, which are now controversial, of course, because of charter schools. But back then, it was a public school of choice, and it meant that kids could apply to the school from all over the district. And how much has, have those values changed over time? I don't think the values have really changed. I think we hold on to those values. I think what we have the advantage of as a so-called progressive school is we've been doing it together for a long time. So we've worked a lot of things out. We've worked a lot of kinks out over the 30-plus years that we've been doing this work. Um, So the values haven't changed. I'll give you one example. Uh, We've put that diverse group of learners together, and then we found out that there were some big needs. Some some of our children's needs were not being addressed. And this is back in the early 90s I'm talking about. So we um, embrace the positive side of special education. Special education has both a negative connotation and a positive. The negative is, of course, you're putting the uh, children with learning disabilities in a room and then leaving them to fail. Uh, the positive is you're getting children as much support as they need and providing them with all these resources, and they thrive. So we got um, interested in, in, in that positive uh, way of looking at special education and um, learned a lot, hired a lot of smart people around special education. We started um, years ago, going way back, a 12-to-1 class, for one, really for one of our students. We're and that's, that's a small class with only 12 children children and one teacher. And we started it for a specific child in our class who really needed it. And then more kids came in. We don't actually have that model today, but what we do have is integrated collaborative teaching, which is when you have the two teachers, as a general ed teacher and a special education teacher, and uh, up to 40% of the children in the class have learning disabilities. We also started that for one of our students. So things sort of came from within, and these things were growing. So today we have a really rich a strong special education program. I think about a third of our children have some kind of learning disabilities. Who And I like to think that their needs are being addressed in the school. So that's a big change. Could you still today start something that's just for one child? <laughs> well, when I say it was for one child, it, we started because we saw a child with a need right. and then invited others in. Yeah, I'd like to think that you can, that if, if you see a child who has a need, because it's always more than one. It's one, in both cases, I, the reason I think I told that story about those two children is it was their parents. So parents pushed and said, I love this school. I want my child to remain in this school, but the school is not really meeting the needs of my child. So, that, which meant that the community was working for the child, the environment was working for the child, but the learning needs were not being addressed. So, I think that if there's one child like that, there's a second child like that. So yes, I'd like to think that one child can motivate us to do a lot for lots of children. So this might be the wrong impression, but my sense of public school, particularly big city public school, <laughs> is like you don't have that much flexibility. How how are you able? How have you been able to kind of uh, navigate the constraints? Each of those stories, you 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 have to. Um, 
you have to build relationships, right, within any system. And that's both at the local level within the school and, and beyond the school. So in each of those stories, we went to the Department of Education. We said, we need this for our students. And in both cases, it was granted, not immediately, not that year, but for the following year. And I can remember... Um, because I've been there a long time now, but going to uh, meetings at the, I'm trying to remember if it was who was making the decision, it was not me, obviously, but it was someone beyond me and saying, um, we need to have a second teacher in the class for this child who has this learning issue and would benefit from ICT. And then realizing the next year, wait, we need we need to have. So we started. This child was going into third grade. Um, this is the second model, not the twelve to one, the um, integrated collaborative teaching. And so we actually started ICT in grade three, not in kindergarten, not in first, but in grade three. And we grew it up. We grew it to four. Obviously, he became a fourth grader. Then he became a fifth grader. But then as we were growing it up, we started growing it down. And each time we grew it, we were going to the district and saying, we'll be needing funding <laughs> for one more teacher in order to have this program. And it's one of these catch-22s. You need, um, you have to have the program, but you also have to have the children. And the children generate the funds. Um, funding formulas have changed from then. But back then, you would go down and you would talk to someone at the district office and they'd say, okay, we'll create um, an ICT class for you. And then they'd bring in the kids to make sure you have the kids to um, so that you could fund the program. Do you have to demonstrate to them that the child who you say has this need has this need? Um, yes, that's called the child has to get what's called an IEP. And that's a whole standard special education process. And in each of these cases, these children did that. But um, when we started the program, we were actually, I mean, children get into Brooklyn New School by lottery. And that's at the obviously the pre-K kindergarten level. But there, we were actually bringing kids in to the school saying, yes, we'll teach these children. So there would be children. And again, all of that has completely changed now. But there used to be uh, a placement officer who would place uh, the children with learning needs in schools. Once he realized, oh, Brooklyn New School has this program, he would put kids in our school. So so you've been principal for more than 20 years, I right? I think you said? so. Okay. Well, 1997, I got the officially I got the license in 2000. So I've been in charge more than 20 years. I've been principal, I guess, for 18 years. So I'd love to hear you talk a little <laughs> bit about both how you have evolved in the job. Right. It sounds like you got sort of, you know, not dumped into it, but um, <laughs> elevated into it before you were necessarily thinking that that was yeah. what you wanted to do. Yeah. So I'm now 20 years on, I'm sure. Um, that's different. And then also just like how the education system around you has changed, because a lot of the things that you're describing are things that now sound familiar to me, right. um, like the integrated teaching or the, you know, um, I, I guess in our district, we call them inclusion classes. Mm -hmm. um, but but then we're not common. How has the job changed or how I've changed in the Both. job. Yeah. <laughs> well, the job has really changed. So that's kind of interesting because the system has just gotten more and more complex. So <laughs> the longer I've been doing the work, the more I'm always learning. I've, I never really know what I'm doing. You know, so, so I felt that way in 1997, but I sometimes still feel that way today. But the job just gets more complex. Um, in some ways, for the better, I think some of these... Um, data systems that we have today. We did not have in 1997. Everything was still on paper back in 1997. Um, today, everything's online. And 
those systems, when they first came into the DOE, people were very resistant, but they actually make things easier once you know how to do them. So in that way, I think um, it's been an improvement. It's been easier. And Brooklyn News School has grown. When I started doing the work, we had just under 300 children. And so we're twice, more than twice as big. And so the job has grown in that way too. I don't think it should grow anymore. It's it's at its maximum capacity. But so my job just got bigger and bigger as time went on. And I'm, you know, I'm, I think I'm 20 years older than I was back then. So I'm much more, um, I think I'm, I'm obviously comfortable in the job. I've been doing it for a long time. I feel like I know I just said before, I didn't know what I'm doing, but I really do think <laughs> I know mostly what I'm doing. And I think I'm more confident and more, um, yeah, I'm pretty clear in my own mind about the decision making that I do every day and why I do it. So, and that's take, that takes time. So yep. I don't know that I would have said that in 97. Yeah. So uh, you've been pretty vocal about supporting the opt-out <laughs> movement, which is yeah. a, a parent-led movement of uh, opting out of standardized tests. What does testing right now look like at BNS? And also, how many families are opting out? And how do you support the families that do and the families that don't? So I did not start out by believing in the opt-out movement. And actually, there was no opt-out movement. So as much as I've always had misgivings about standardized tests and what they do to children and to parents, uh, I also believe in having some kind of data about children. In fact, in the old days, I can remember as a teacher, uh, often it would be hard to explain to a parent, and it still is hard, why um, you thought a child was struggling and perhaps needed more support, special ed services, maybe another year in the grade, whatever it was. And often the standardized tests would be your ultimate data. The parent would have a hard time hearing it from the teacher, hearing it from the report about the work they were actually doing in class. But then you'd produce this test at the end of the year with a terrible score. And finally, the parent would say, oh, yeah, I guess my kid does need more support. So I always saw the tests as sort of a a useful tool in a sense. And um, it wasn't something you prepared for in the sense of practicing the test, but you did your reading and writing and math work. And at the end of the year, the kids took a test. And often the strugglers would not do too well on the test. So it was, I felt, helpful as a communication tool with parents. Um, but then the test started being used for political reasons. And so we saw, and this is a lot of history, and I'll try to do it very simply, but we saw tests do two things. First, become too easy. In other words, there was um, the No Child Left Behind mandate, where every child, I think, by 2011 was supposed to meet the standard. So if you want everyone to meet the standard, it's an easy way to get there, (laughs) make the standard really low. So that's what they did. And all of a sudden, you saw some of your non-readers passing the test, which is kind of bizarre. And um, you also couldn't differentiate. There was no evidence. I remember one year, every child in one of my fourth grade classes got a three. And that's absurd. They sh- they're not all three. Some of them are really strong and some of them struggle, but they all got a three. So you couldn't really differentiate where kids were. You couldn't show where kids were on the continuum. And of course, they figured that out. And then the Common Core came along and they said, oh, we've got to show that kids are not meeting the standard. And they went sort of the other way. And all of a sudden, we were administering a test where we saw head banging and tears and all sorts of avoidance behaviors. And uh, that was really a, a very disturbing year. And I'll never forget it. Um, the reports, I'm not, not actually in the room when the kids are admin 
are taking the test, but the reports from the teachers were, was very, very disturbing. Um, and one of, I happened to have a, a person who today is a teacher, but he was a paraprofessional. He had just started as a paraprofessional. He's a parent who I got a license as a paraprofessional. And he called it, he was observing, he was in a class and he observed it, and he called it state-sanctioned child abuse. And I've never lost that. <laughs> that phrase in my head. And I think he was right. So it was that experience that year. And then after that, a particular parent who sort of came to me and said, my child will not be taking the test. And I said to her, but she has to take the test. It's required. She says, no, she doesn't have the test test. And she will not be taking the test. One parent, one year, the following year, four parents. And I think the year after that, 80%. So it really... What I did was not disagree with these parents. And then as we saw more and more concern coming from both the teachers, from uh, the children too, and then from these parents, we sort of embraced it and sort of uh, supported it and did a lot of analysis of the tests and of how kids were doing and made a decision to, um, to not stand by the test. We also made some unusual decisions during that time to do no test prep was a decision we made, which was extremely unusual because what we were seeing happening in other schools throughout the city, and I'm sure the state and the country where curriculum was changing in light of the test. So children were basically talked to people who had their kids in other schools and the program, the curriculum was test prep from September to not till June, September to April or whenever the test was. And that was very disturbing because as a mother, I have um, my daughters are both in their 30s. That was not the education they got back then, nor did any of their friends in any other school get that education. That was really unique to the next generation and seemed ridiculous that the whole curriculum was test prep. So we made a decision not to do test prep. And... Um, and now it's kind of worked in our favor because <laughs> we've become known, you know, as the opt-out school. And the there's a, uh, a relaxed atmosphere in our school that I can assure you is not there in schools where 100% of the children are taking the test. It's just um, we feel pretty laid back about it. We don't get hung up on what the scores are going to be and so on. The teachers are not allowed to say what they think of the test, so it's a little bit of a catch-22. But teachers can speak about how children are doing in school, and they can speak about what's best for a child. So that, that's where the catch-22 is. And so we do a good job of doing that. We do do a testing forum where we talk about the tests. We show the, the state has sample tests on the state website, so we share some of those sample tests and discuss uh, the pros and cons of testing. So we do all of that. And um, what we found is that most of our parents have become uh, comfortable and sort of think of our school as a school where there won't be test prep and it's best. There's no reason to really take the test. The reason parents always had for taking the test, besides wanting to know how their kids were doing, the other reason, of course, was middle school, getting into a good middle school. And what they saw was, was that our children were getting into good middle schools with, without the test scores. And so that changed that attitude too, I think. So you're not really having to deal with a population, a segment of the population at your school who like actually wants their kids to, who's focused on the testing and yeah. is disappointed that you're not doing they, test prep. Less and less each year. I think when we first, 
when more and more of our parents just made this decision, it was hard, I think, on the families who felt strongly that the tests were important. I remember one parent saying that her kid was a good test taker and not a good not good at these other th- academic skills like talking in class or or writing the perfect um research paper whatever but he could do well on a multiple choice test and she felt like he should have the opportunity to show that and take the test and i remember that was her perspective how did you answer her i felt she should trust his other work <laughs> more than she did <laughs> you know like he's got to have more strengths in tests cuz ultimately tests aren't going to get you through your working life right <laughs> so um it's been a lesson but now today you asked what the percentage is we've averaged um 95% opt out for the yeah. last few years is that the highest so, in the city it might be. Yeah, it might be. Um, and our 5% who take the test are generally a very diverse group from families who do truly believe in the test, uh, families who know that their child will do well on the test, um, who have practiced and so on at home, and families who don't even realize that today's a testing day and they just haven't really been paying much attention. And families, of course, who say, if there's a test. My child should take the test, but have, they haven't really paid much attention to the debate. So all of those kind of kids. And that turns out to be a handful on each grade. <laughs> You've mentioned a bunch of things that sound like they've been driven by parents who are mm-hmm. advocating for their kids, yeah. uh, which mm-hmm. is great. Yeah. But I also imagine that parents can be difficult and demanding because everyone wants what's best for their kids. How do you uh, think about the kind of parent management part of your job? <laughs> Oh, that's hard. (laughs) Parents. It's a big part of the job. Communicating with parents is hard. Every once in a while, it's difficult. It can't, I mean, you want everyone to like you. You want everyone to think um, everything you say is right, but that's not going to happen. So you have to kind of uh, be as honest as you can with parents and as open. Um, I had a phone call with a parent about uh, a behavior incident and trying to be accessible, have those, just before I came here, have those conversations as much as possible. Um, We do some things, I think, that help. We have something called Parents as Learning Partners. Every Wednesday is Parent Day at Brooklyn New School. So we have parents as learning partners. We have PTA meetings. We have what what are called parent breakfasts where parents come in to learn about what's going on on the grade level. So every grade level gets a parent breakfast at least twice a year. So I think the most important thing is that constant communication. Um, I have a wonderful parent coordinator who does a lot of that parent work, assistant principal, and so on. It can't just be me. But... Um, being perceived as accessible as much as possible, which is hard. And I know the more I've been doing this work and the bigger the school has gotten, I'm a little bit more removed um, just by virtue of um, time and space and numbers. Um, But I think you do need parents' trust. It's really, really important. And I hope that most of the parents trust um, the administration. But I think the key people for parents are the teachers, that that's really where the relationship is built. And if they feel they can communicate with their child's teacher, then we're really just there as administrators to answer questions and be supportive either when it's not working or when there's a learning issue or or um, uh, curriculum issue or whatever. Yeah. Is it true that sometimes a decision you make is not best for all the kids? There's no decision that's right for every child. I would imagine, right? right? But I don't know how much you yeah. can say that to the parents. <laughs> no, I think it has to be true. I mean, I'm trying to think of it. Uh, swimming. We we send all of our um, 
second greatest, nice concrete example, swimming. And we, we do this because we think, I think every child should learn to swim. I think that's a nice basic skill that human beings should have. So we uh, we started doing it, I don't know how many years it's been, about 10, maybe five, 10 years. And um, there's always a child. We have different levels of swimming. We have the non-swimmers who go the whole year. It's a wonderful program at Asphalt. And then we have the kids who have some kind of swimming skill who go for eight weeks. And um, there's always a child who's a non-swimmer who really struggles with it. And every once in a while, you have to say, okay, he or she doesn't have to go swimming. Uh, either a fear of the water that's so intense. Sometimes it's something as simple. I think there's a child that had eczema and couldn't have their skin in the pool. So you have to accept that yeah. <laughs> that child can't go swimming. But still, the belief is that every child should go swimming. And that that's just a simple, concrete example. Same thing with um, another, another concrete, my, one of my favorite. Um, should the children go outside, right? Big conflict. Um, there are those parents who love Brooklyn New School because we greatly believe in kids going outside. But I had a grandmother the other day tell me, that it was much too cold for her child to go outside. So we have compromises. We have ways of working with that. We have what we call choice days where the children can choose to go in or out. We have um, asthma alert days. So kids who have asthma stay in and they bring a friend to the gym. So trying to work something out that works for most children is sort of how we handle it. Uh, One thing as a parent of elementary school age kids, (laughs) I think about a lot is that the setup at schools, particularly now that I think most schools, and it sounds like BNS is one of these, um, that really prioritizes parent involvement, it also, it's hard for for families with two working parents. And a lot of things are set up in a way that make, that still feel to me like with the assumption that one parent is home or free. Right, absolutely. How do you navigate that? That's hard. And it's interesting because we just had, um, it's really funny you asked that question because our school leadership team, which meets once a month, and that's made up of parents and teachers and administration. And it's a wonderful group of people. And um, it's the, the great job for the parent who likes to talk. <laughs> no, they do some action, too, but it's, a, it's like a think tank. <laughs> and um, we were discussing um, parent involvement. And the one. Um, we also have a PTA, and the executive committee of the PTA feels that they do everything. And they do. They do a tremendous amount of work. And sadly, in schools like ours, and this get into a whole nother discussion, a lot of the work of the PTA is fundraising, right, and making that extra money that makes the school have the enrichment and so on. Um, And there was a big discussion about how do you get more parents involved? And the irony is, I think we actually have pretty good parent involvement. So from my perspective as administrator, we have a field trip parents go on the field trip. We have something called project time in our school where children are building and making projects for their curriculum. And the teachers put out a call for parents to help because there's a lot of art and activity going on and you need more hands, more adult hands. Parents are always there. Walk into a classroom, there'll be two or three parents there. So for lots of things that we do, parents are great. But then we're trying to organize this big thing called Apple Fest, and nobody wants to be in charge of it, which is totally understandable, because it's a really big job. And um, we haven't figured out the answer to that question. Uh, One suggestion that was made at our meeting was that we have grade level grades that are responsible for different events. And that's a nice idea. So we work it through. But I think the answer to your question is we talked about it at this meeting. We, We 
grapple with it, and we keep discussing it and try to come up with some way of getting parents involved without demanding it because we're not a co-op. We're a public school. And we know that for some of our parents, just the fact that they made sure little Johnny did his homework and they, you know, they, that's and they got the child to school. That that's huge amount of parent involvement right there. So, respecting um, that parents, I think, uh, I feel from my perspective that parents are doing the best that they can do. Yeah, you know, I'm pretty positive. Some parents get frustrated with other parents, but from my perspective, uh, parents are really working hard. So, how many teachers are at the school? I think we're almost fifty teachers. Yeah. How does the org chart work? Because I assume everyone doesn't report to you, or do they? Yeah, Are you everyone's do. boss? I'm everyone's boss. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, technically. <laughs> I have an assistant principal, and so she's hugely important. And so between the two of us, we're really in charge of working with our teachers. But I think that's a really good question. I'm not really their boss. I'm their colleague. Obviously, I'm their rating officer. I evaluate all of the teachers. But the, the way the school works, as remember, I was a teacher director. So it started that way and it continues that way. And that this, this is an incredibly experienced staff. There are teachers um, who've been at the school almost as long as I have. So we have teachers. I think our oldest teacher is probably in her 70s, and our youngest teacher is probably about 21. <laughs> so that's the age range of our staff, which is kind of wonderful. And um, and they all bring that experience and that knowledge to the to the partnership. Um, and so a lot of the work that we do is about teachers working with teachers, professional development, teachers sharing their practice with teachers. It's a really smart staff. And my job, I think, as an administrator is to kind of create the safe space so that people can do their best work. So both the safe space that people can do their best work, but also the, um, I'll use the DOE word, accountability. So there's some kind of sense that it's really important to do your best work um, because you're, um, you want to do what's right by kids. And so that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> How do you evaluate teachers without, without the test scores? There's so many ways you do that. It's first of all one well, one thing is you I do observe teachers so I'm in I just uh, was in a I observed a third grade teacher today teaching math so um, there's observing but even observation is just one part of it there's a lot of conversations I meet with teachers all the time I'm discussing kids I'm discussing their practice I'm sharing ideas um, and there's not an assumption that they're perfect because they're not perfect so. Um, I often find with teachers and with all of us that our strengths are our weaknesses. So looking at what that is and really grappling with it with the teacher. And my goal when evaluating teachers is not to give them a score, but rather to say, um, here's what we're working on. Um, how do you feel? Oh, and a lot of self-reflection. So it's not so much, I can say, well, I don't think you're very good at this, but that's kind of useless. I need the teacher to say, this is the thing I need to work on. So if I can get to a place where a teacher comes to me and says, I really want to work on my management or on my math curriculum or whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. Then it's the teacher who's working on her practice and I'm supporting that growth. Um, and that's my goal. It's very rare uh, I feel like we, I, I was going to say I, but I'll use the pronoun we, hire very well so that the people coming into the school are really ready to be there. And so the goal is not to evaluate and get rid of teachers, but rather to evaluate and grow teachers and to have them really be um, do their best work. And there's always room for growth, even in my most senior, incredibly experienced, wonderful teachers. What are you looking for when you hire a teacher? <laughs> 
Um, that's quite a process, our hiring process. We have our group of teachers and administrators who sit around a table and ask a few, not a lot of questions, but a few important questions. And then sometimes we also have the teacher do observation. What are those few important questions? Uh, <laughs> Or can you not give it away? No, I can tell the <laughs> questions. I, I, yeah. uh, there's a question around parents, some, some not too different from your questions. They're not so much about the, the skills of teaching. They're more about the, the big ideas of teaching. So like parent, how do you um, communicate with parents? There's also a question about collaborating with your colleagues and what you learn from collaborating with your colleagues. There's a question about... Um, a lesson that you really did very well or a curriculum that you did very well. So, and then there's a question about, um, this is a trick question, uh, the books that you use in your teaching, um, both the professional literature and children's literature. I say it's a trick question because invariably people lose, their brains just go blank and they can't think of any book they've ever read <laughs> in their life. So that's why it's a trick question. And there's a question about children and um, children that, um, the question is actually, tell us about a child who stayed in your head after hours. <laughs> so those are the questions. What yeah. are you trying to get out of that last one? Uh, how they respond to the children that um, – there's a wonderful book. I can't remember the author's name, but it's called Troublemakers. And it's about the children that um, – the troublemakers in class. And uh, in every class is a child that a teacher will struggle with. So how do you respond to those children? And what what is your um, – what do you do when the child does not – do what you thought the child should do in that moment. And every teacher has to deal with that. So we're curious about how teachers think about those children. And it, sometimes it can be behavior, but sometimes it can be learning and feeling that you're not meeting the needs of, of um, a certain child. And sometimes it can be the child who's extremely capable, but perhaps not participating in, in the group or whatever. But we're we are always curious what child comes to their mind because that tells us a little bit about them too. So those questions are just very open-ended questions, but they help us see who they are. And we're looking for someone, um, in answer to your question, who's passionate about, about this work and who's flexible and who's a learner. That's really, really important. We don't want to hire someone who tells us they figured it all out. <laughs> nope, won't take them. <laughs> How do you evaluate if someone's good with kids? So sometimes we can tell right away, and we don't do the model lesson. But if you're not sure or if you have a lot of candidates, then we often do the model lesson. And then you can tell very quickly how um, an adult talks to children. Yeah, it's not that hard. I mean, do they get down on their level? Do they talk quietly? Do they listen? Most important, very important, do they listen to children? A lot of adults just talk at children, but do they actually listen to them and are interested in what they have to say. Children sometimes take an awful long time to get their thought out, so it takes some patience. Do you feel like your sense of what makes a good teacher for BNS is partly about how you approach teaching? Yes, but I don't want all the teachers to be like me, and that's something I do talk to parents about, that um, in, a, in, your, in their years at the school, you want different kinds of teachers. Like, they shouldn't all be alike and, and feel the same, because... Uh, in the real world, they will be working with different kinds of people. So we really are preparing them for that. Um, so there are some teachers, like my approach, I would say, tends to be a, a quieter listening approach. But I've also been amazed by some teachers who are very, you know, dramatic and present and sort of it's it's their show and they're amazing teachers. And I think you need both types of teachers. Yeah. So you said you haven't, you've hired so well that you haven't had to... <laughs> Uh, you know, work with too many 
difficult teachers, but yeah. I'm sure you've had some. Yeah. So how do you handle a teacher who's it's not working hard. out? It's very, very hard. It's um, a lot of, again, the observations, the feedback, the conversations, um, and it's really hard. I mean, and that's the best answer. And then ideally you're figuring this out before they have tenure. Once they have tenure, it's impossible. But if, if the teacher does not have tenure, um, you can um, – let someone go, really can. And it's not an easy thing to do, but it, you can do it. And I have had to do it. But mostly it's conversation and working. You want to have that honest, honest conversation. But um, it's, I, I'll try to <laughs> keep hiring well so I don't have to do that. <laughs> we ran a story a couple of years ago by Dana Goldstein. And I think the study found that actually principals were the most important recruitment and retention tool. Like teachers said that the principal of the school was more important to them than the money. Wow. And, you know, I, I'm sh- money is important to everyone who works. Right, um, right. So it's fine for money to be important. But what do you think it is that a good principal can, can do for a teacher that would make such a difference? It's that balance between safety, just like children in a way. I mean, not to say that teachers are just like children, but I, it, I do find that there are some correlations between running a classroom and running a school. Um, so it's the balance between creating a safe space where teachers will take risks and really try hard and do their best work, and at the same time, creating an environment in which not only are they willing to do that really hard work of teaching, but also willing to ask questions and to also set goals for themselves. So that um, one of the exciting things about our school is that I always find the teachers have come up with some new big idea, a new plan, and um, they feel that they can. We've created an environment where they can do something like that without worrying. I often talk to teachers from other schools who say, oh, who will tell me the principal won't let me do that? So that's a worry because – even if their idea is not a good one, they should feel that they can share it with the principal and discuss it and see the pros and cons of whatever that idea. It's like whether it's going swimming or what's an – I'm trying to think of a crazy idea, but something that's a little bit different from your day to day. So too many teachers feel like there's only one way to do it, and that's the principal's way. And that, I think, you wouldn't want to – I wouldn't want to work in a school like that. You want to uh, – I went into teaching back in the 70s. So it's been a long time ago now. And I saw it as a place where I had a lot of ownership of the practice. And I'm not so sure that young teachers today have that same sense. And um, it's a very different world than it was. Back then, nobody was watching you at all. <laughs> you went in your classroom, you closed the door, and you were on your own. I'm not saying that was good because I think there was a lot of uh, not great stuff happening in classrooms. But you were you were free in a sense. And today, I think uh, teachers are micromanaged. And I think we have to be careful about that. Um, teachers don't want to be micromanaged, just like people don't want to be micromanaged. So it has to be a balance between uh, those expectations of really doing um, good work, but not getting in trouble, <laughs> just like the kids, if, if, if you flounder. Yeah. And that's, I think, what teachers are looking for. You have been in this profession for a very long time. And I I read a 2013 Times piece about the opt-out movement. And you said that you felt a a responsibility as a senior principal, I think as an older principal, (laughs) to to speak out because younger principals might not feel comfortable doing that. What about being an older (laughs) principal is uh, a challenge or a, you know, benefit? 
I think uh, wisdom. No, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, years of doing the work and sort of you've seen everything, so nothing really phases you, and you just keep um, <laughs> doing it. And um, and what's wonderful about this work, or not just being a principal, I think working with children. Yeah, it's always important to have children in your life. And um, so that's why I love the work that I get to be with children every year. And no matter how much I've been doing this work, children just keep teaching you something. So that the the amazing thing about it, it, it hasn't been the same for the last 20 years because otherwise I'd be bored. But it keeps changing, still stimulating, still exciting. And really... I really enjoy my work. I, I feel very lucky that I get to go to school and be with kids. And um, But it may be how I do my work, too. I'm not sure that all principals would say that. But I really enjoy um, the give and take, the meetings. Um, I sit and meet with teachers a lot. Um, and that's very exciting, too. So it, it's not boring. Every day is busy. Um, I don't know where the time goes. Um, so, yeah, I think it's all of that. And the joy of working, I have an incredible uh, assistant principal in my school who is, I'm trying to remember how old she is, but she's in her early 30s. And so she's really young. And she started in my school as a student teacher, then Masab, then a teacher, and now the assistant principal. So that work too, working with her and um, seeing how many, how much intelligence. I also think of myself as the one who finds the smart people. Not, I'm not the smart person. I, I hire the smart people and get them to do, do the work. So uh, I get great joy out of working with um the the young people in my school who teach me so much. Do you, you know? try to keep up on like <laughs> flossing and dabbing and whatever the like? What I kids do, are doing? but I I do, but I I know that's what I'm saying. There's yeah. a lot I don't know. Like yeah. I'll give a again a concrete example: technology. Like the way uh, my young teachers and my assistant principal use technology is just remarkable and. I can't. <laughs> yeah. I can't do that. And I, I, I'm too old to learn. So something like as simple as technology. Yeah. What is the ideal relationship between a principal and an assistant principal? Uh, collaborative, almost like, which is what that original vision, going back to um, how I started, we were co-teacher directors. And so uh, when we lost the ability to, to do that, um, the my co-teacher director left and someone else um, came into that role as as um, and in that case, I was the principal and she was the assistant principal. But we again, it was in title and of course in pay only. But what the actual work, we were still co. And so today, I definitely think if only because of the age difference, people, uh, my previous assistant principal was older than me. So sometimes people would get confused and they'd think she was the principal and I was the AP. But now there's no confusion because <laughs> Because I'm the oldest. But really, it's that collaborative piece that we're really co. Yeah. Uh -huh. How important to you is, is the gender makeup of your staff? I mean, women, teachers are mostly women. Yeah. But... Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you're not allowed to hire by things like gender and race, right? I think there's, there's written rules about that. And yet those things are both very important that you're looking for um, male teachers and you're looking for teachers of color because your children, you have boys and you have students of color. So you want uh, your staff to reflect the students. So we, we are very aware of that. And we're very fortunate at our school to have quite a few male teachers and teachers of color, but we need more in both cases. And I got a wonderful email from a parent this year that I, I enjoyed because she wrote and said her student, her son, who's a black boy, needed a, a male, a black male teacher. <laughs> and of course she was right. So now that's my mission. Um, <laughs> I need to find her one because she's um, 
we have Latino male teachers, but no no black male teachers. And you think that that's school. true? That's that people really need to see themselves in their teachers. Absolutely. Yes, I do. Yeah, I think we all need to see ourselves in our teachers and in our peers. Right, and it's really really important. Yeah. Teaching seems really hard yeah. uh, always, but yeah. even more now. I think you know. Everyone sees that there are not enough resources. Schools are totally yeah. teachers and, 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 you know, public education itself is so undervalued. What would you say to someone young thinking of, you know, thinking I would be good at this. I would be a great teacher or, or my future is I would be a great leader of a school. But it, the, the challenges seem yeah. totally overwhelming. I hope that people continue to go into the profession. I think it's an incredible profession. I worry sometimes that some of these schools make it hard for for people to uh, become teachers. I am the mother of a teacher. I'm very, very proud of her. Um, She's a dual language special education teacher. And um, that's, to me, the most exciting thing. So I And she loves her work. I think I've teased her once in a while and said, well, maybe one day you could be a principal. And she says, absolutely not. <laughs> and she knows what the job it entails. So um, I hope that we'll continue to get um, young people who want to teach and also want to lead schools because we need them. And um, But they're there. My assistant principal is, is up for it. And there's lots of other people like that. So... <laughs> This was a really, really fun conversation. Thank you very much for doing it. You're welcome. That's it for this week's episode of Women in Charge. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. That helps more people find us. And please send feedback on the show and suggestions for guests to womenincharge at slate.com. Thanks to producers Jessica Jupiter and Cleo Levin. Thank you to Gabe Roth, editorial director of Slate Podcasts, and June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And thank you all for listening. Thank you.